welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, December 17th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, December 19th. I have to send a huge shout out to my mommy. Happy birthday. Um, I just had to get that off the- Happy birthday. Yeah, I had to get that out uh, before I forgot. (laughs) Yes. Such a sad, right? Um, But anyway- Thanks for that. Uh, my name is Reese Robinson. I'm on the air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, ladies? It's going. We're yep. here. <laughs> it's going. We're here. I'm waiting my turn to get COVID since oh. um, it seems like the thing to do oh. right now. Everyone, I know, I would say the majority of my friends here in Spain and in, in, at home are, are all getting it. Wow. Now. Wow. It's so crazy. <laughs> or being exposed all at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's wild. I um I'm I'm remaining hopeful that it's it's all very mild, especially if you're vaccinated right now, especially if you're young and vaccinated. Um but you know, I'm I'm trying to be I'm not being, you know, careless or reckless, but it's just I think it's inevitable at this point with what I'm hearing. Mm. Yeah, things are turning around. Things are turning around. They're talking about canceling a bunch of holiday stuff now. So mm-hmm. Um, definitely everybody be vigilant and be safe out there. Yeah. Just remember we're all in this together. I know it's easy to feel lonely and, and stressed out, but literally the whole world right now. So you're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So on the docket for today's episode for local news, we have a story about New York city banning gas for new construction. In our national news segment, we'll be talking about the candle fire that happened in Kentucky factory in a Kentucky factory. And then in world news, we're talking about the rise of suicide in Indian households in India. And we also have some good news from Emily, um, which is which will include some excerpts from a feel better essay about climate change. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with the local news segment. Emily, you're up. All righty. So I think this is I would say almost it, it's pretty much a good news story, a good local news story, which we rarely have. But I was pretty excited to see this. Um It comes from an article that I will be quoting from heavily. Uh, It's from December 15th in the New York Times by Anne Bernard titled NYC's gas ban takes fight against climate change to the kitchen. New York will become the nation's largest city to enact a ban on gas, heat and stoves in new buildings. It's a major step away from fossil fuels that is expected to influence wider markets. The article explains, quote, New York City will ban gas-powered heaters, stoves, and water boilers in all new buildings, a move that significantly affect that will significantly affect real estate development and construction in the nation's largest city and could influence how cities around the world seek to reduce the burning of fossil fuels, which drives climate change. The City Council on Wednesday approved a bill banning gas hookups in new buildings, effectively requiring all electric heating and cooking after what council members and lobbying groups described as weeks of intense negotiations. The ban takes effect in December 2023 for buildings under seven stories. For taller buildings, developers negotiated a delay until 2027. Mayor Bill de Blasio, a Democrat who called for the ban two years ago, will sign the bill enthusiastically, said Ben Furness, the Director of Climate and Sustainability for the Mayor's Office. Uh, Quote, New York will be the largest American city to enact such a law, though New Yorkers currently attached to the blue flames of their gas stoves and their cozy gas-powered heaters will not be affected unless they move to a new building. 
State lawmakers have proposed a measure to ban gas infrastructure in all new buildings starting in 2024, but a vote has not yet been scheduled. Variations of gas bans have spread from liberal enclaves like Berkeley, California, and Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, to bigger cities, including San Jose, California, Seattle, and Sacramento, as efforts to curb climate change increasingly take aim at the burning of gas as well as oil. What makes the bill a harder sell in New York, where 40% of carbon emissions come from buildings, was winter. Until recently, gas was promoted as the cleanest option for heating, and proponents had to convince lawmakers that new and quickly improving electric technologies could heat and cook as well and at least as cheaply. Uh, Real estate developers argued that the added demand for electricity in winter might lead to blackouts. Developers, along with National Grid, a utility that supplies gas in the city, said the ban's effect on the climate would be limited unless the, until the city stops getting most of its electricity from fossil fuels, and that improved gas equipment w- uh, should remain an option. A state law requires a shift to renewable sources like solar, wind, and water power, but that transition is expected to take years. Still, the proposal gained momentum from a year-long grassroots campaign, from candidates running on climate issues for city and state office, and from growing concerns about storms, floods, and fires. It also drew support from less predictable quarters, Uh, independent energy analysts, uh, real estate businesses betting on green development, and even Consolidated Edison, or Con Ed, (laughs) the city's other main utility, which, unlike National Grid, supplies electricity within New York as well as gas. Con Ed, along with proponents like the Urban Green Council, a a nonprofit group that promotes sustainable building, argued in council hearings that the city's grid could handle the increase partly because its biggest strains come in summer from air conditioning. The shift to electric heating actually has the potential to reduce demand in summers, the group's analysts argued, because many builders are expected to turn to heat pumps, which are already common in Europe and which both heat and cool spaces and use less energy than air conditioners. Uh, the measures lead sponsor. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> Quote: The measures lead sponsor, Councilwoman Alika Ampre Samuels, a Democrat from Brooklyn, said it would reduce air pollution and climate dangers that disproportionately kill and harm vulnerable groups like Black and poor people. Uh, "Quote: Bans on gas hookups are the latest challenge for an industry already besieged by campaigns against fracking, pipelines, and gas-fueled power plants. Permits for two such plants were recently denied by state regulators." The fuel, long known as natural gas, which climate advocates prefer to call methane gas or frat gas, is less harmful to respiratory health than oil and emits less carbon, but producing it releases methane, an even more potent greenhouse gas. In fact, the trends have made the gas industry nervous enough to lobby states to forbid localities to enact gas bans. So far, 20 state legislatures, all of which are controlled by Republicans, have passed laws preventing the bans. Quote, the law, pa- the law passed 40 to 7 covers gut renovations that require new building permits. It allows exceptions for emergency power, uh, businesses like restaurants, bakeries, and laundromats, and residential buildings where at least half the units are classified as affordable. Without su- uh, substantially raising building costs, proponents say, the law will also reduce air pollution and the danger of gas explosions, create jobs in clean energy, and redress environmental inequalities. Uh, Quote, a recent study by the think tank RMI found that the law would prevent 2.1 million tons of carbon emissions by 2040, equivalent to what 450,000 cars spew in a year, and save electricity consumers several hundred million dollars in gas connections, whose costs are passed on to them. 
Uh, yeah, so that was some interesting slash good local news for you. Um, I personally have been sort of, um, I don't like, it just feels so dangerous to me. Like obviously the environmental benefits of getting rid of gas in buildings is, is huge, but it's just so easy to like leave a gas stove on and just the whole building like goes kaboom. And like, it's just so quite crazy to me that, um, that's just the norm in New York city. Um, in Spain here, I think it's, I think everyone has an electric or like, I don't know if it's conduction. So I tried to, and we were talking in Spanish, so I may just have misunderstood them, but, um, I was talking to someone trying to explain that I, we have gas stoves in New York and they were like, I don't understand. Um, but yeah, no, I think this is great news. Yes, yeah, a long time coming because you're right. Like it is, um, I've been in situations where you have that eerie, like, is do I smell gas? Is something like calling someone to come mm-hmm. out? Um, I haven't had a gas stove in a while. Like right now, what I have is electric, but it's definitely a concern. And it's one of those like big systemic, like infrastructural things where it's just like baked into the city sometimes it feels like like things that are outdated things that can catch fire easily or that can poison you easily and you don't even realize it so yeah it's definitely some good news absolutely i mean there are benefits to having gas for like cooking and stuff like that but it's so really dangerous and a lot of times you know i actually one of my students this week recently had a fire in her apartment because the landlord did not like fix an electrical problem that existed before she moved in because it was an old building and all these other things. And it really could be just such a catastrophe so fast, you know, it can affect so many people as well. And maybe this is, you know, a, a turn in the right direction, but definitely good news that they're doing something about it and actually making regulations that have to be followed. Now, how quickly those regulations go into play, that's, I guess that's the other part of the mm-hmm. story, right? Yeah. I think how quickly they become like noticeably effective, right? Because there's no requirement that existing buildings, you know, unless I think I listed some of the, um, or I know I listed some of the, the exceptions and it's sort of like that question of like, you know, will the exceptions outweigh the, the actual impact? But I think, um, it sounds like it's going to have a huge impact over the next 20 years, which is a very long time. Yeah. (laughs) But Hey, you know, that's life. It's, it's it's something, but you know, maybe it will, maybe people will be more aware of it and then push for there to be like some retroactive changes, yeah. you know, cause yeah. it is a problem and people do realize like, oh, like these new buildings you're doing X, Y, and Z. What about my building? You know, it's like, why is it okay for mm-hmm. mine to be like this? So yeah, we'll, we'll see, but yeah, you're right. It is something I wish they would go backwards and. Mm-hmm. you know fix what's already a problem yeah yeah um I think it also sounds I mean it sounds like it's going to influence um markets nationwide which I think is also an interesting idea not just like local um like local like uh like considerations in terms of like oh I also want to have like a safer a less methane filled building but um I think like different companies that contractors and things like that will have to start shifting like nationwide, you know, demand will change for sure. Um, So that'll be cool too. Awesome. Definitely time for us to 
make some changes where they need to be done. And also a lot of times, as we always say, the older populations are the ones that are affected by this because they live in older buildings and, you know, they tend to not um, be as um, proactive or they can't for various reasons about trying to get these things to the to the light so that actually changes can be made. So that's pretty cool. Thank you for that story, Emily. We're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break today. This song is called We Go Harder, and it's by Laura Marva and Myra Andre. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Jasmine with our national news segment. Um, so this was actually, I think at the top of the hour, I misspoke on what the story was about. So there wasn't a fire that destroyed uh, the candle factory. There were um, a bunch of tornadoes that ripped through six states. Uh, so this story is from uh, BuzzFeed News. The title is The Candle Factory Destroyed by the Kentucky Tornadoes Wouldn't Let Employees Leave, According to a New Lawsuit. Uh, and this was written by Ellie Hall. Um, and just as a, if you're not aware, like uh, in the past few days, there were at least 30 different tornadoes that were reported across six states. Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, and Tennessee. So like there were a few things where I, I kind of got the wires crossed or didn't realize that there were like multiple tragedies tied to this, but this is just about one of them. Uh, survivors of the tornado that destroyed a Kentucky candle factory, um, and that was in Mayfield, Kentucky, have filed a class action lawsuit against the company claiming it behaved with flagrant indifference to the lives and safety of its workers by a few, refusing to allow them to leave early when the first tornado warnings were issued. Tornadoes tore through six states on Friday, December 10th, leaving destruction in their wake. 
So far, at least 88 people have been reported dead. 76 of those victims were from Kentucky, the state hit hardest by the disaster. Among them were at least eight people who were inside the candle factory. The lawsuit alleges that Mayfield Consumer Products, the company that owned the candle factory, had more than three hours notice that the building was in the path of a tornado, but failed to act to ensure the safety of the 110 employees working at the time, and even threatened employees with termination if they left before their shift ended. The defendant knew or should have known about the expected tornado and the danger of serious bodily injuries and death to its employees if its employees were required to remain at its place of business during the pendency of the expected tornado, according to the civil complaint. The case was filed on behalf of 18-year-old employee Elijah Johnson and others similarly situated, defined as natural persons over the age of 18, who were working the night, the night shift for the defendant. When the tornado hit and destroyed, the defendant's place of business caused their injuries. On Wednesday, lawyer Amos Jones told the Courier-Journal that the other plaintiffs are not being identified by name because of real-time reprisals that already have begun. Fifteen factory employees, including Johnson, told NBC News on Monday that they asked their managers if they could leave as as the tornado approached and were rebuffed. I asked to leave and they told me I'd be fired, Johnson said. He told NBC News that when he asked his manager, even with the weather like this, you're still going to fire me, they answered yes. Mayfield Consumer Products spokesperson Bob Ferguson denied the employees' allegations in a statement to the network, calling it absolutely untrue. We've had a policy in place since COVID began, he said earlier this week. Employees can leave any time they want to leave, and they can come back the next day. BuzzFeed News has reached out to Mayfield Consumer Products for comment on the lawsuit. In a statement to the Associated Press, Mayfield Consumer Products CEO Troy Propes said that the company was engaging in an independent expert team, was engaging an independent expert team to conduct a review of the actions taken by managers and employees in the hours before the tornadoes hit. We're confident that our team leaders acted entirely appropriately and were, in fact, heroic in their efforts to shelter our employees, Probst told the AP. We are hearing accounts from a a few employees that our procedures were not followed. We're going to do a thorough review of what happened. On Wednesday, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir said that the state investigators will conduct their own review of what happened and the factory's tornado safety practices. Everyone is expected to live up to certain standards of both the law of safety and of being decent human beings, he said. I hope everybody lived up to those standards. Um, So, yeah, kudos to, like, Elijah Johnson at 18 years old, like, to decide that you're going to put your name out there and speak up. Like, that takes a lot of guts. Um, But, yeah, it was just such a sad thing to read about. Um, There were multiple other articles around the internet where like more employees were describing like being told and hearing with their own ears that, you know, if you leave, you're going to be let go. Um, But it seems like the company is claiming that's not uh, their actual policy. 
So we all know that uh, companies have policies that just don't get followed sometimes, right? And they have those policies to cover their own ass. Um, but then, you know, there it's like the written word and then it's like what a manager may actually be getting told by a higher up, right? Where it's like Christmas right. is around the corner. We we have orders we need to fill. Um, we're in deep shit if we don't fill these orders. And then people's people's safety um, is in jeopardy, are in jeopardy, right? Is in jeopardy. And uh, also like, you know, this is this is the oldest story in the book, right? Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Um, yeah, you know. I was just gonna say, and like I pulled up because I I went to a school where the the original building is still there, and there's a plaque that you can see mm-hmm. where it describes, you know, like they were agitating for better conditions and better safety protocols. Nothing happened, and then 146 people, most of them young immigrant girls died Mm -hmm. you know because they locked them in so like I taught a class when I was teaching um, ESL and it was about that fire like that was one of the like little books that we had to read so Mm -hmm. just like the lengths that they went to to like things you take for granted now that like the way that doors are supposed to open Mm -hmm. so that you're able to push out they didn't have that or like having you know like a really rickety elevator and like there were eyewitness accounts of people describing like looking up and seeing faces, like knowing that they weren't going to be able to make Mm -hmm. it back up for another trip to get the girls out. Mm. And it's like, it's that's over a hundred years ago. And there's still things happening like that now, whether it's this or with COVID it's like, you know, having people in conditions in like food factories and stuff where they can't wash their hands. They can't use the bathroom. They can't be out sick you know, it's not the same as like a fire or a tornado, but like the concept is the same, like mm-hmm. pushing you past what's reasonable. Yeah. For I mean, money. Def- definitely before COVID at the very least, I-, I haven't worked in restaurants since COVID, but like I knew people working with fevers all the time because you don't get paid for sick time, you know, when you're like a, right. a server. Um, and yeah, it's just totally not built for, uh, it's, it's totally about money. It always about money. Um, yeah. And it it was also interesting too. You said that, um, the, like one of the first things was a comment from the representative from the candle factory being like, this isn't our palace. This isn't our policy. Like this is factually inaccurate. And then like later on, they're like, we're also doing a review though, where it's like, okay, well, how about you just say like, we're going to investigate and like, not say definitively that Mm -hmm. it's, you don't know. You just, you're, you know what I mean? It's like that sort of like, language that's incredibly frustrating um where it's like okay so you know that there's a chance that this is true because <laughs> you're investigating it you know exactly and like to your point like you mentioned because that's also in the article too that um oh ever since covid and it's like look that whole part of the country there's uh, there's been tornadoes like in that part of the country like it, this isn't like a disease like so what do you mean ever since covid so before covid happened right. they couldn't leave if right. there was a tornado warning like what so you know it's really and you know when you're in charge like you're the captain of the ship it mm. shouldn't be incumbent upon the worker to be like well, can I leave? Well, I'm just, I guess I'm going to leave, you know, like you should, if you're in charge, like you should be like, no, like corral people, like we all have to get out. Right. But you know, you're manipulating people that way. 
Also, it's a weird policy where like you can leave at any time and come back the next day. Like that's not super effective during COVID anyway. Like you're not going to get, you're not going to recover in a day. You might not even get a test back in a day to know for sure if you have anything. Um, if you're exposed, like that's not enough time to know that you'll contract something like that policy is also like super suspect. It, it really, it, yeah, it's terrible. And like I, I, like I mentioned, there were so many things popping up on social media and just in the news about, you know, tragedies related to this. Like there was like an Amazon warehouse in Illinois where some people died, like they were crushed to death, like trying to seek shelter. Um, and at least with that one, like the last one that I read, there was a guy, like he, you know, kind of, again, reminiscent of what happened with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. A lot of the signs, like there were signs that were in languages other than in English, but just like that you have an overrepresentation of like vulnerable people mm-hmm. where like this guy, like he didn't understand English. He was a driver for Amazon or his English was very limited. So like he didn't really understand like what he was hearing on the radios and stuff like that. But once he showed up, one of the managers like put turned them around, like go to get go to a shelter immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what if he had not happened to run to, into that one person, or like how mm-hmm. if you knew the storms were coming like a day in advance, why is it like only a matter of hours, and then you're mm-hmm. scrambling trying to come up with a plan? Like, you know, as long as it's like profit over people, it's like the people are always the last priority. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's really a damn shame. I know. And our culture, it was never built for those sorts of like people over everything decisions, right? Like before COVID, you know, it doesn't, it didn't matter. We lived in a world where like, oh, yeah, you were expected to show up even if you were feeling like shit, right. Or you were right. expected to be everywhere exactly on time. It doesn't matter if the train, you know, broke down, like you have to figure out a way to get to this meeting you had to be at. And I think COVID has been, for a lot of people, obviously not to the degree it needs to be, or hopefully we'll see more of in the future, but like a wake up call where it's just like the world doesn't work in those, you know, um, definitive ways, right? Like nature doesn't work that way. Like we need space to cancel things and to be like, okay, this is going to start late and this is going to not happen today. Right. Like, right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that COVID did highlight, like the importance of humanity, um, to a lot of industries and individuals as well, because we we were going along with the same shit too. It was like mm-hmm. we lived up to t- to these expectations because we didn't challenge them. We felt like if we challenged them at all, that we were being defiant or we would be in a situation where we would lose our job. And so we actually believed that shit. And now you see a lot of people are slow to return to work, making different decisions about their wellness and even the industries that they work in, what it means, you know, to be a part of it. So something like this is really sad. It's heartbreaking because like what's so important about a fucking candle factory that's more important to people's lives or any industry for that matter. No, like absolutely. And you know, the fact that I, there's a paywall and I'm not paying for it, but like the New York times had an article where it was like, the candle factory was a lifeline for the community. And who was I talking to recently? It was just like how so much of your life is determined by your job in this country, mm-hmm. where it's like losing your job. It it would be one thing if it's like, okay, you lose your job, but you know that you're going to get unemployment or you know that certain, like there's a social safety net that will catch you. So like, if you do decide, you know what, fuck this, I need to go for my safety 
you at least know that like you'll ha- be able to make it until you get something else. But when you're in these situations where it's like you won't have health insurance if you lose the job. So like what if you have some kind of condition where like you really need that or your kids are depending on you and there's like no plan B if you don't have the job. It's like you're holding people hostage, you know, for consumerism, yeah. you know, like the candles could have waited. They could have waited. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, now this company has to deal with this negligence, which affected way more people than it helped. I'm sure that their future will never be like their past. And, you know, if the company even can go on after this, it's kind of irrelevant at this point because so many people were affected by this negligence. Yeah. And it's not just one company. Like it, it, like we were all saying, you know, I think we've all experienced it. Like it's a pervasive problem in American culture like this worker like working yourself to death mentality like even when it's not necessary like people that don't even have to physically be somewhere but it's their boss's prerogative that they want to see you or something and you know that stresses you out um but yeah if you're in New York City the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is now the Brown Building it's an NYU building um, and it is at 23 Washington Place in Greenwich Village. And there's a there's a plaque there to memorialize them. Um, and there's like an event every year. Because, you know, it's people always, it seems like people always have to lose their lives for certain things to be taken seriously. And then even then it's like enough time passes and it's like the same shit happens again. Wow. What an important story. Thank you for sharing that, Jasmine. And um, yeah, prayers up for the families who were affected by this and many other tragedies that happened um, during this time. All right. So we're going to go ahead and hop into our next music break before we hop into the world news and the good news. The next track is called The Mighty and it's by Ashley Henry and Ben Mark. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our world news segment. Um, this story comes from the BBC.com and the title is called What's Behind Suicides by Thousands of Indian Housewives. The author is Gita Pende. Why do thousands of Indian housewives kill themselves every year? According to the recently released data by the government's National Crime Records Bureau, 22,372 housewives took their own lives last year. That's an average of 61 suicides every day or one every 25 minutes. Housewives accounted for the 14.6% of the total 153,052 recorded suicides in India in 2020, and more than 50% of the total number of women who killed themselves. And last year was not an exception. Since 1997, when the NCRB started compiling suicide data based on occupation, more than 20,000 housewives have been killing themselves every year. In 2009, their numbers rose to 25,092. Reports always blame such suicides on, quote, family problems or marriage-related issues. But what really does drive thousands of women to take their lives? Mental health experts say a major reason is rampant domestic violence. 30% of all women told a recent government survey they, that hey, they had faced spousal violence and the daily drudgery that can make marriages oppressive and matrimonial suffocating. Women are really resilient, but there's a limit to tolerance, says Dr. Yusha Verma Svervastava, a clinical psychologist in the northern city of Varanasi. Most girls are married off as soon as they turn 18, the legal age for marriage. She becomes a wife and a daughter-in-law and spends her entire day at home cooking and cleaning and doing household chores. All sorts of restrictions are placed on her. She has little personal freedom and rarely has access to any money of her own. Her education and dreams no longer matter and her ambition begins to extinguish slowly and despair and disappointment set in and the mere existence becomes torture. In older women, says Dr. Srivastava, the reason for suicides are different. Many face the empty nest syndrome after the children have grown up and left home, and many suffer from perimenopausal symptoms, which can cause depression and crying spells. But suicides, she says, are easily preventable in that if you stop someone for a second, chances are they would stop. That's because, as psychiatrist Sumitra Pather explains, many Indian suicides are impulsive. Man comes home, beats up wife, and she kills herself. Independent research, he says, shows that one-third of Indian women who take their lives have a history of suffering domestic violence, but domestic violence is not even mentioned in the NCRB data as a cause. Shitali Singh, a psychologist with Bangalore-based mental health app WISA, says a lot of women who remain in active domestic violence situations retain their sanity only because of the informal support they receive. 
Ms. Singa, who earlier worked for three years in the government psychiatric hospital in Mumbai, counseling survivors and attempted suicide. Counseling survivors of attempted suicide says she found that women form little support groups while traveling in local trains or with neighbors while buying vegetables. They had no other avenue to express themselves, and sometimes their sanity depended on their conversation they could have with just one other person. She says, adding that the pandemic and the lockdown worsened the situation. Housewives have a safe space after the menfolk would leave for work, but that disappeared during the pandemic. In situations of domestic violence, it also meant that they were often trapped with their abusers. It further, it further restricted their movement and their ability to do things that brought them joy or solace. So anger, hurt, and sadness builds over time and suicide becomes their last resort. India reports the highest number of suicides globally. Indian men make up a quarter of global suicides, while Indian women make up 36% of all global suicides in the 15 to 39 year age group. But Dr. Pathar, who has researched mental disorders and suicide prevention, says India's official numbers are huge, are a huge underestimate and do not convey the true scale of the problem. If you look at the Million Death Study, which monitored nearly 14 million people in 2.4 million households between 1998 and 2014, suicides in India are underreported between 30% and 100%. Suicide, he says, is still not talked about openly in polite company. There's shame and stigma attached to it, and many families try to conceal it. In rural India, there's no requirement for autopsies, and the, rich, and the rich are known to lean upon the local police to show a suicide as accidental death. The police entries are not even verified. So there's a little bit more to the article, um, but this is alarming um, and eye-opening because I've never actually heard of suicide being a, a big problem in India. Never, I guess I never even considered it, but those numbers are staggering when you think about it and Layla agrees with me apparently what do you girls think yeah that was pretty wild to hear I know um in the U.S. there was a lot of news I mean in general but I I know it was focused on what I was reading in the U.S. about um during lockdowns people being trapped at home with domestic violence abusers right yeah like I've definitely heard about that um yeah, the numbers are are crazy. I also wonder too because of um when someone makes the decision that they're going to take their own life like there's so many different ways that they might do it where maybe it does seem like it was an accident or something but then other times it's more obvious that no like this was something that the person did intentionally. Um but yeah, that's a, it's that's extremely sad and like you said, like I know a lot of domestic abuse numbers and child abuse numbers have went up exponentially with people being trapped in the house together with like when they used to be able to go out to work or they could go out to school. Like now it's like all day, every day with someone that was already dangerous. That's even more dangerous now. It's um, it's horrifying. Yeah. And the fact that those numbers were like that before the pandemic Um, are also pretty alarming because, you know, because it's not public conversation, I don't even think we're comfortable talking about it in the U.S. or other countries, but we have made it more of a public dialogue so that people don't feel so ashamed. Um, But it really does, I don't know if it aids or 
I don't know the right way to say it, but being able to have public dialogue about something so serious, maybe it can change the tide. So, all right, we're going to go ahead and hop into the good news. Emily, what you got? All righty. So, uh, yeah, as Reese mentioned earlier, this isn't, it's not quite a feel good essay, but it's definitely made me feel better. Um, it's been a really tough week with, in terms of extreme weather and climate and, you know, polar caps, icebergs disappearing. And, uh, I, you know, when that happens, I start panic Googling, like, please let me feel better. And this definitely made me feel better. Um, it, uh, it's from a November 1st essay in Wired uh, by Hannah Ritchie, and it's titled Stop Telling Kids They'll Die from Climate Change. Uh, the author writes, quote, is climate change the biggest threat to humanity? Uh, many people would say so. Young people in particular feel hopeless. A recent survey asked 10,000 16 to 25 year olds in 10 countries about their attitudes about climate change. The results were damning. More than half said humanity was doomed. Three quarters said the future was frightening. 55% said they would have less opportunities than their parents. 52% said family security would be threatened. And 39% were hesitant to have children as a result. These attitudes were consistent across countries rich and poor, big and small. From the United States and the United Kingdom to Brazil, the Philippines, India, and Nigeria. It's totally legitimate that young people feel this way. I've been there. Today, much of my work focuses on researching, writing, and thinking about climate change, but it's a field I very nearly walked away from. Fresh out of university with a degree in environmental science and climate change, it was hard to see that I could contribute anything at all. I flipped back and forth between anger and hopelessness. Any effort seemed futile, and I nearly quit. Thankfully, my perspective shifted. I'm glad it did. Not only did I continue working on climate, I'm also sure that my work has had many times the positive impact it would have had it would have if I'd been stuck in my previous mindset. And that's why I'm convinced that if we're going if we're to make progress on climate change, we need to lift this cloak of pessimism. Let's be clear, climate change is one of the biggest problems we face. It comes with many risks, some certain, some uncertain, and we're not moving anywhere near fast enough to reduce emissions. But there seems to have been a breakdown in communication of what our future entails. None of the climate scientists I know and trust, who surely know the risks better than almost anyone, are resigned to a future of oblivion. Most of them have children. In fact, they often have several. Uh, young ones, too. Now, having kids is no automatic qualification for rational decision-making, but it signals that those who spend day after day studying climate change are optimistic that their children will have a life worth living. That's why I find it alarming that most young people today feel like they do not have a future. Many might also forego, forego having children as a result. This mentality doesn't just show up in survey data. It also tallies with my personal experience. I'm in my 20s and hear it from friends all the time. The dilemma about whether to bring kids into a world on the path to annihilation is a real one. One of the most recent and alarming examples of this doomsday mindset came from a group of young activists before the German elections. The group who called themselves the last generation went on hunger strike for almost a month. Several ended up in hospital. One told his parents and friends that they might never see him again. Another told a journalist that the hunger was nothing compared to what we can expect when the climate crisis unleashes a famine here in Europe in 20 years. I couldn't work out where this claim was coming from. Not from scientists. No credible ones have made this claim. Climate change will affect agriculture. In some regions, particularly some of the world's poorest countries, this is a major cause for concern. So I spend so much of my time working on it. 
but famine across temperate Europe within 20 years? Uh, There are a couple ways I think this doomsday scenario has become commonplace. First, you don't need to look far to find people with large platforms promoting these messages. Take Roger Halam, uh, the founder of Extinction Rebellion. In one of his most recent videos titled Advice to Young People as They Face Annihilation, he claims we must get emissions to zero within months, otherwise humanity will be wiped out. He claims that this annihilation is now locked in. The worst thing about this message is that rather than rather than inspiring action, it resigns us to the falsehood that we are already too late. There is now nothing we can do. It's easy to dismiss Halam as an extreme outlier, but he is also the founder of one of the world's largest environmental movements, a movement whose name is hinged on this premise that we're heading for a total wipeout. This is out of line with the science, and scientists should call this out more prominently. Second is a miscommunication of targets and thresholds. The 1.5 degrees Celsius target was written into the Paris Agreement in acknowledgement that 2 degrees Celsius of warming would risk the livelihoods of some communities, particularly low-lying island states. It was a call for greater ambition. But the likelihood that we would meet this 1.5 degrees Celsius target was as slim then as it is now. Feasible in the models, but in reality, it's gone. The problem is that many now view 1.5 degrees Celsius, uh, or a centigrade, I guess, as a tipping point threshold. Once we hit it, the game is up. It's therefore not surprising, given that we will most likely pass 1.5 degrees Celsius, Celsius in the next few decades, that many people believe we're too late. Third, the pace of almost real-time updates means we are bombarded with news of the latest disaster. These stories matter, but they don't give us an accurate perspective on how the frequency and consequences of disasters are changing overall. In fact, they give us a false perspective. The data tells us a different story. Death rates from disasters have fallen a lot over the past century. This isn't because climate change has no impact on the severity of disasters. We're just much more resilient to them. We have better technologies to predict storms, wildfires, and floods, uh, infrastructure to protect ourselves, and networks to cooperate and recover when a disaster does strike. Follow the news and we quickly come to the opposite conclusion, that more people are dying from disasters than ever before. Some media outlets use the frequency of articles as a marker marker of progress. Uh, The Guardian publishes a new climate article every three hours. At that pace, most of these articles are reports on the latest catastrophe. Uh, It's an anxiety-inducing feat. Quote, Doomsday scenarios play into the hands of climate skeptics. When the world doesn't end in 10 years, the whole field of climate science takes a hit. People assume this message came from scientists, which didn't, and their reputation becomes tarnished. The public loses trust in them. This is perfect for those who want to stop us from taking action. Uh, Quote, we're moving far too slow, but things are now moving and at an increasing pace. Politicians might be slow, but technological change is not. Coal is effectively dead in many countries. Renewable prices are falling rapidly. The price of solar fell by 89% in the past decade. Onshore wind fell by 70%. They're now cheaper than coal and gas. To make this transition, we will need lots of energy storage. There's good uh, news there, too. The price of batteries has fallen by 97% in the past 30 years. In the 1990s, a Tesla car battery would have cost you more than half a million pounds. I guess this person's British. Um, Today, it's around $13,000. Even those who don't care about climate change will make these changes because it makes economic sense to do so. The fact that politicians act so slowly and that low-carbon technologies have been up against lobbying fossil fuel giants might make us pessimistic, but it actually makes me optimistic. If we can achieve this progress without real political or financial support, Think how quickly it could change with it. 
Rather than trying to power through a headwind, we now have the wind at our backs. We need a new message for climate change, one that drives action through optimism that things can be better. Or based on the signs that things are getting better, we might rebrand that this optimism as realism. This would be much more effective at driving real change and would save a lot of mental strife in the process. It's time to stop telling our children that they're going to die from climate change. It's not only cruel, it might actually make them make it more likely to come true. And that was a lot. I mostly read uh, from the whole essay, but uh, I really, really needed it and appreciated it. And I found basically all those chunks important to the story and the narrative. So uh, yeah, guys, don't give up hope. Don't tell children they're going to die from climate change. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that um, I do feel with a lot of these issues, whether it's like climate change or like racism, like things that are these big existential overarching things, I do feel like you need the push and the pull of people Mm -hmm. that are optimistic and also are looking at the ways that things are better or can get better, but you definitely also need the people that are like pointing out like stuff that is alarming that can kind of wake people up because I feel like everyone's sort of motivated by different things like things that might motivate someone to one person to action will make another person apathetic and vice versa um but yeah I do think that it's kind of messed up to be like telling young people that they're not gonna grow old like that's that's like why are you doing that yeah I totally agree I think I I agree I think um there is that line and it's very hard to walk right between the motivating fear factor and the um total existential like crisis that we don't really have the mental capacity I mean I guess the closest similarity would have been after World War One. I, I think everyone was like oh we have or maybe even after World War Two, but I know after World War One specifically like that like across the world people were like what the fuck and like you know with uh, mustard gas and like just the the cruelty and humans are just gonna all wipe each other out and I feel like I guess it's really similar now where everyone's a lot of young people are having a huge and, and me I'm having a huge existential crisis like every other week related to this stuff where it's like oh my god like the way the world has been for millions of years is now <laughs> like is it well like going to still be available to us you know I know my um I know people who bought houses 30 years ago that weren't in flood zones and now they're sort of in flood zones and like what that means for a secure future and is security a myth anyway and it's just a lot of questions and I can't you know I feel lucky that I'm at an age where like you know I lived a good chunk of my youth if not all of it depending on who you ask like not worried about this and I I feel really I really feel for young people who are like, oh, should I even bother planning a career, right? Um, yeah, scary. yeah. There's also the other thing I wanted to mention, like the I think you said the person is based in England. And Possibly. yeah, from what they were saying. Um, but I also think that, you know, there's also there's people who are dealing with the worst of climate change like right now, you know? So it's like, there's mm-hmm. people who maybe like you're in a, you might live in a part of the world, like where for financial reasons, political reasons, 
it's not touching you like as immediately but Mm -hmm. there's other people that are like living with severe like smog and like poisoning Mm -hmm. from like waste and stuff like that so it's kind of like we're not everyone in the world is not at this experiencing it at the same clip so like there also can't be it's like we're not all going to be on the same page as far as like how urgent something might be but I do think it's important like Um, One of the climate writers I like to follow on Twitter, like Kendra Lewis, I think her name is, she always points out that like there's things that you can that we can do now, like Mm -hmm. as a society that would improve things. But that's like never covered. You know, it's like you can Mm -hmm. talk about what's happening, but there's also things that can be done. Uh, And she has a podcast called How to Save a Planet. Mm hmm. So I'll put a link to it up on um, on our show page because, you know, I do think that that's so important. Like, OK, like it's bad. And then what are the things that we can do to combat it? Right. But that part is always left out. Right. You know, which is not helpful. Yeah. I mean, what I what I found also specifically interesting um, about this article was that um the specifics of her of the author diving into why she thinks we as a society have decided that we're done in 20 in 10, 15, 20 years. Like I've had friends that are be like, Oh yeah, we only have 10 years left. Like for the last five years, like in my ear, like just like confirming my own fear biases. Oh wow. Yeah. Like, and I mean, like I think there's like, there was a certain amount of facetiousness like five years ago, but now like the clo- the worse things get every year, the more it's like, Oh, like maybe, um, but no, but her like diving into why um, these things are in are prevalent like across the board was really interesting right like the fact that the the goal of 1.5 like even if we don't meet that like you know isn't isn't doomsday but that messaging has gotten warped uh the fact that no no scientists are saying we have 10 years left it's all like you know like pundits and you know other people writing articles not the actual scientists themselves i think that was really interesting um yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's hard, obviously, like these types of tornado, like extreme weather patterns, like do cause immediate death and, you know, for some people for doomsday style. And it's it is it's scary. And it's. Um, uh, uncertain future is always scary. Uncertainty is scary. Um, but I think those spirals of like we're doomed, we're doomed. We have three years left. I like why even bother? is will actually is causes more harm than good right like it removes the agency to feel like you can make a difference um and that's important because you can we we can all be captain planet yeah (laughs) all right so um Oh, but we did lose a great thinker recently. Um, the oh. writer and poet Bell Hooks passed away. Yeah. Um, so we didn't get to talk about her this hour, but um, I've been slacking with putting up links and stuff on the show page, but I'm going to make sure to put up some things that um, you can read by her yeah. uh, if you're not familiar. Yeah. And one of my favorite, I guess is the word pastiche, but um, one of my favorite Instagram accounts is Saved by the Bell Hooks, where they they pick screenshots from say by the bell and overlay it with bell hooks quotes that are like really make it like the juxtaposition of the images from the show and what the quote says is is very thought-provoking i think um but of course nothing tops actually reading directly from bell hooks but if you're if you're lazy or you love both of those things i recommend that account okay i was not expecting that 
Um, yeah, no, it, the world is an interesting place sometimes. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, like that was a that was an interesting um, good news or like mixture of good yeah. and sobering news. So Reese is going to take us out. Thank you so much for that wonderful good news story, Emily. And that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Radio Free, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to go ahead and play you out with our final song of the day, Best of Me, by Alicia Keys off of her new album. Have a wonderful week. Happy holidays, everybody. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.